Welcome everyone. I have a few updates before we begin. Thanks to the support of Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobook selections, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I often use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me whatsoever. Every recommendation is either a book I personally read or listened to through Audible, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless if you decide to continue your membership with Audible or not, this book is yours to keep forever. It's a pretty good deal. So visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Stay tuned after the show where I will give you my audiobook recommendation. My second announcement is Patreon. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. I have many plans for this podcast for 2021, including making YouTube videos about Marine Corps battles, conducting more interviews with Marines, and even visiting some of these battle sites we discussed on the podcast and creating virtual tours of the battlefield. We also have an event coming up in February, honoring the 76th anniversary of Iwo Jima. Details are currently on Patreon, And I'll post this on social media as we get closer. But holy crap, if there is one historical monument to support, this is it. This monument was built for Iwo Jima survivors by Iwo Jima survivors. Visit patreon.com slash marine history to look at our Patreon page. I'll include a link in the podcast description as well. Thanks for your time and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 51 of History of the Marine Corps. The First Sumatran Expedition Last week, we discussed a legendary Marine, Archibald Henderson. Henderson served as the Commandant for 38 years, the longest anyone served as the Commandant, which earned him the nickname Grand Old Man of the Marine Corps. This episode dives into an essential but rarely discussed expedition. Marines will travel to Kuala Batu in Sumatra to handle another group of pirates. During this episode, we discuss this battle's origin, how the Marines helped secure victory, and conclude with the introduction of the Creek and Seminole Wars. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Merchants from the United States have had a difficult time in foreign ports since before the American Revolution. Before the Founding Fathers established the country, merchantmen lacked support from a strong naval force. This resulted in multiple ships sailing international waters without adequate protection. During the American Revolution, the United States relied heavily on merchantmen to serve as privateers to defend the country against the British. 
This added responsibility included the privateer marine's role, whose duty was similar to the Continental Marines, but arguably more of a burden. The purpose of the state and privateer marine was to defend seaports, trade routes, and coastlines. The states with larger fleets procured vessels that could handle the dangers of sailing into deeper waters. But naval warfare wasn't the primary concern of these ships. Escorting local merchant ships and defending local coastlines from British scouts vessels had priority. Since their mission was different, privateer ships were usually smaller and designed with mobility and speed in mind. After the American Revolution, Congress decided to disband multiple ships constructed for defeating the British. Disbanding military units after the war was common practice at the time, and the United States would disagree on the value of a permanent navy until after the War of 1812. Once accepting the presidency in 1789, George Washington appointed Alexander Hamilton as the Secretary of the Treasury. The U.S. had a debt of $4.5 million, and Hamilton's economic plan focused on commercial growth. This demand led to a time when the merchant was one of the world's most critical roles. International trade was essential for the United States. Before the U.S. was a country, the colonies had a great trading relationship with Great Britain, but that changed during the American Revolution. In 1778, the French foreign minister supported the idea of helping the United States against England, arguing that American independence would negatively impact British trade. In addition to Britain's restrictive trade policy, he thought freedom would end the relationship with America's former parent nation. He also assumed that Americans would be grateful to France for their help with the war, which would increase trading. But this wasn't the case. In 1789, British exports were higher than they were before the Revolution. French exports rose as well, but they were nowhere near the levels of Great Britain. Britain's success wasn't something planned by the United States, and most of the problems with international trade from France came from their end. France tried to sell their inferior products to the United States, which either never sold or sold at a substantial loss. Americans didn't have faith in French products, and the French didn't have an interest in American products. The United States' reluctance to French trade generated a lot of opinions from the French. They thought that Americans had terrible business ethics. They also assumed that the United States wasn't grateful for France's assistance during the Revolution, but neither of those two assumptions were true. Even though this controversy wasn't the direct cause of the Quasi-War, the lack of a strong navy left our merchantmen vulnerable. France was angry about the Jay Treaty between the United States and Great Britain and decided to take it out on the United States merchantmen. In 1790, Captain Robert Gray of the merchant ship Columbia successfully circumnavigated the globe, opening new avenues for trade. Whalers, fur traders, and sealers started traveling to new areas, which added to the necessity for protection from a strong naval force. In the Mediterranean, Barbary pirates attacked one merchant ship after another, while breaking every treaty signed with the United States. Again, the United States had a considerable merchant fleet. 
However, they didn't possess a navy. This part of history resulted in years of tribute payments and captured American citizens. It wouldn't be until Eaton, Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon, and his Marines made the infamous march to Tripoli that the harassment would stop. As we recently finished, the War of 1812, merchantmen faced impressment by Great Britain and were forced to serve as soldiers and sailors in their military. But with the War of 1812 over, merchantmen were once again free to travel the open seas and find new areas of interest to support their business. Due to the Columbia's voyage, many merchantmen focused on the Pacific, specifically Southeast Asia, which concentrated heavily on pepper. Sumatra is in current-day Indonesia, and they are known for their superb pepper export. The origin of pepper in Sumatra is assumed to have been brought in by Indian tradesmen about 10 centuries ago. With the popularity of trade in Southeast Asia, the United States merchantmen discovered Sumatra's pepper and brought it back to the United States. There's no doubt that Salem, Massachusetts was one of the leading importers of Sumatra pepper, but it isn't clear how the U.S. was first introduced to the spice. The mainstream thought is that Captain Jonathan Carnes, commander of the Rajah, returned from Sumatra in 1799 with the first shipment of pepper. The Boston Journal and multiple historians have reported this. Carnes's ship was outfitted specifically for travel from Salem to Sumatra in 1795. There are a few variations of the story but they all end up summarizing that his cargo was extremely popular with Massachusetts citizens and earned him a lot of money. This excitement added to Pepper's popularity, and Salem would focus on this part of the world until the 1850s. Author and historian Samuel Elliott Morrison provides convincing evidence that merchants brought in Pepper from Sumatra 14 years earlier. In his book, Maritime History of Massachusetts, 1783-1860, he points out the memoirs of William Vans. Vans was originally from Salem, Massachusetts, and visited China on the ship Grand Turk in 1785. While the vessel was returning to the United States, Vans wrote, quote, Went into co-partnership with Jonah Freeman at Boston, fitted our brig Cadet for India, this being the first vessel from America to Ben Kulin, Movo, Padang, Tapanuli, and other ports on the west coast of Sumatra, where I bought cassia, cinnamon, gumbenzoin, pepper, and other goods, and opened a trade with that island, which has been so beneficial to the United States, and particularly to the town of Salem." Unquote. But regardless of who first brought pepper back to the United States, Salem was the origin city, and merchantmen from that area made frequent trips to Sumatra and dominated Sumatran waters. Much like the Mediterranean, the amount of money available in this area was large, but there were dangers. During the 1820s and 1830s, the trade in the Pacific was increasing in popularity. President Andrew Jackson understood the economic growth potential of this popularity and, under his administration, started to develop trade agreements and treaties with governing officials in that area. The administration also understood the potential dangers of trade in the Pacific and assigned a flotilla, 
consisting of the Potomac, Falmouth, and the Dolphin. While this squadron was preparing and collecting copies of treaties, the merchant ship Friendship traveled to Sumatra. In February 1831, the Friendship traveled to Kuala Batu to purchase pepper. Kuala Batu is in the northern part of the island. The harbor merchant ships would pull into wasn't large, and the popularity of this port would sometimes be challenging sailing in and out of the harbor. But business was booming for everyone involved, and most merchantmen dealt with this inconvenience. The Friendship pulled into the port with a similar mission, to purchase pepper. Everyone took advantage of the popularity of pepper, even the local villagers who frequently traveled to this harbor to meet the U.S. and European traders. Captain Charles Endicott of the Friendship sailed early to Sumatra just in time for the start of pepper season. They were the first ship from the United States to arrive in port, and they immediately began negotiating their pepper load price. As the merchant ship was preparing for her additional cargo, Captain Endicott, his second officer John Barry, and four other sailors went on shore to meet with the local pepper vendors. They prepared sacks of pepper for the voyage and loaded one of the villagers' boats with pepper bags to take to the Friendship. The village ship headed for the Friendship around three in the afternoon with a full load. As the cargo made its way towards the ship, Captain Endicott noticed the boat stopping at the river's mouth and picking up extra passengers before resuming its voyage towards the Friendship. Waters were choppy at the time, and Endicott assumed the additional crew were oarsmen to help row the boat. In reality, the oarsmen would leave the ship, and local pirates would take their place. When the shipmen arrived, the crew spotted six additional villagers in the boat along with the pepper. Against the direct orders left behind by Endicott, the Achenese, from northern Sumatra, boarded the Friendship. Chief Mate Charles Knight of the Friendship noticed the locals on deck, and he stopped the cargo from being loaded on the vessel. The number of pirates on board the ship outnumbered the Americans, and instead of disembarking, they attacked. With little option, the United States merchants fought back, but the number of pirates was too great. Knight, along with two other men, were killed. The remaining crew jumped ship and swam to shore. The pirates stole everything of value from the ship including a chest with $12,000, their cargo, and even the copper bolts out of the timber. John Barry and two of the other shipmates who traveled to shore saw their crewmates abandoning the ship and ran towards Endicott and reported what they saw. With the help from a local Achenese guide, known as Poe Adam, the Americans jumped in a boat and headed towards the nearest trading village. Locals chased the Americans but the merchantmen were able to escape. They met up with three American ships, the James Monroe, Governor Endicott, and the Palmer. The captain of the Friendship explained the situation, and in the morning, all three vessels sailed towards the Friendship. When they arrived, the Americans spoke to their local ruler, who rejected the peace agreement between them and refused to give back the ship. This rejection resulted in the three American vessels bombarding the pirate and forts in town. Endicott would take a boarding party of three boats full of men and retake the ship, 
it wasn't much of a battle, since the vessel was already deserted and emptied. When the friendship arrived in Cape Cod on July 16th, they shared their story. The ship owner wrote a letter to the President of the United States, four days later, requesting that the U.S. act against the hostile attack. It would take the note three days before it reached Andrew Jackson, but the Department of the Navy was already planning their attack and were preparing a punitive expedition. The news of this confrontation spread like wildfire, and the entire country learned about this incident. The Department of the Navy sent the Potomac, a 44-gun frigate, to lead the expedition. Commodore John Downs took command of the frigate, and he took a large detachment of Marines with him. In charge of the Marines were Lieutenants Alvin Edison and J.H. Terrett. As the Potomac came up to their target, Downs ordered the men to move the yards and riggings into a position that resembled the merchant ship. The Potomac was able to deceive the locals, and they thought the ship was indeed a merchant vessel. With the ship in position, it was time for the Marines to act. Downs prepared midnight landing raids, and every Marine would participate in the attack. The landing party boarded smaller boats and rowed three miles through rough waters to reach the shore. The entire force was able to get to the beach without facing hostility. With the crew on shore, Marines started to prepare for the advance. The lieutenants would lead the attack. They brought with them one six-pound artillery piece, which they nicknamed Betty Baker. When daylight broke the following morning, the advance began. Along with the Marines were three divisions of seamen. Quote, the other boats had also commenced disembarking their respective divisions, and in 15 minutes, all were safely landed, formed, and in order to march, each man having found his place, according to the position he occupied while being drilled on the decks of the Potomac. Unquote. Each group had its own mission of attacking forts. The most challenging fort was past the town, and Lieutenant Edson and his Marines oversaw securing this defensive structure. Quote, the Marines formed in front, facing to the south, the other divisions in like manner, the right of each being near the edge of the water, the left but a few yards from the groves of coconut trees and jungle. Unquote. The Marines had the most challenging job, and their fort required them to cross a stream and cut through thick jungle. Lieutenant Edson and Terrett, along with the Marines, headed towards the fortress belonging to Tuku Dilama, which was situated 500 yards behind the other forts. Quote, These forts, and particularly the citadel, were generally bedded deep in the jungle, which prevents them from sudden surprise and abrupt attacks and gives to the defenders the means of holding out longer and to better advantage. In the rear were the three schooners in the harbor, and Betty Baker, all of which would provide cover fire for the advancing Americans. The artillery fire was effective, and the Marines were able to reach their target and take the fort, stopping the rear defenses from retaliating against the advancing force. The Malays met them with firmness but could not stand before the superior discipline of the Marines, whose ardor seemed fully to compensate for their want of numbers. Lieutenant Edson, with the remainder of his men, proceeded through the town to join Lieutenant Shubrick 
and receive further orders. Unquote. As soon as the Marines took the fort, they sent a large force to help the two advancing groups. The Americans successfully surrounded the Malay ranks and caused significant damage to the pirates. The Rajah himself left the safety of his fort and joined his men in fighting the Marines. He led his men from the front, fighting hand to hand and receiving multiple slashes and bullet wounds in the process. Although a brave and courageous move, the Rajah wouldn't last long in battle and would ultimately be killed by a Marine. There's a report of a Malay woman running to his side after he fell. She was dressed in extravagant clothing took command of the Rajah's forces, and fought the Americans until she too was killed and fell next to the Rajah's body. This battle continued until Americans killed almost all of the pirates. It was over in two and a half hours. The mission of the Potomac and the Marines was over relatively quickly, but the message from the United States was clear. The bombardment nearly destroyed the town. Quote, Nothing now remained to be done. The Malays had been beaten at all points and curved to retreat. Their forts dismantled and the outworks consumed, from which the fire had spread to many other buildings in the town. The surf was rising rapidly, when from two Kent bugles the air of Yankee Doodle was sounded, which as previously agreed on, brought all the scattered divisions to headquarters when they commenced embarking under cover of a guard of Marines." Unquote. Two Marines died during this battle. Lieutenant Edson, along with 10 other men, were wounded. The Sumatrans had an estimated 150 deaths, including the Rajah, who supported this whole fiasco. The number of injured was immense, but unknown. Many of the casualties were villagers, which included women and children. This battle isn't well known, and it's something I never heard about in the Marine Corps. But much like many other of the smaller conflicts we covered, the role Marines and sailors played was significant. This area was one of the last where United States merchantmen faced pirates. The Marines and sailors sent a clear message that the United States wouldn't tolerate further harassment from pirates. Due to the actions from the United States, piracy along the entire coastline would dwindle. Before the Americans left Sumatra, Down spoke to the men and explained why the United States sent the Potomac to their village. He stated his mission was to see justice was served for the attack on the friendship. And now that justice have been served, he agreed to maintain peace with Kuala Batu. Quote, At the same time, I assured him that if forbearance should not be exercised thereafter from committing piracies and murders upon American citizens, other ships of war would be dispatched to inflict upon them further punishment. Unquote. The Marines will teach the pirates a second lesson in 1838 during the Second Sumatran Expedition. When the news of the battle reached the United States, citizens were outraged. The New York Evening Post published an article based on a letter from an anonymous tip. The letter described the attack, the burning of the village, and the death of women and children in the town. The letter also stated that the United States did not negotiate with Kuala Batu before the amphibious landing and attack. President Andrew Jackson was in the middle of a heated presidential election campaign with the National Republicans and the Whig Party regarding the National Bank. 
the news of another battle happening overseas, along with the death of innocent civilians, added to the tension. Much like the political battles we see today, there was a group for it and a group against it. The House of Representatives ordered the president to report on the conflict, and Jackson's administration sent a copy of their correspondence, Downs' orders, and Downs' report after the landing to Congress. At the end of the day, Jackson's orders were clear. Downs was to try to negotiate first and only attack as a last resort. Without much evidence against Jackson, the political tension died down. Up to this point, Marines' primary role was to serve in detachments on board naval vessels. The relationship between the Marine Corps and the Navy was like chocolate and peanut butter. They were made for each other. However, the Marine Corps had a new commandant in charge that believed the Marine Corps could do more. That man was Archibald Henderson. Marines proved that they were vital in naval warfare. And now the new boss wanted to expand on the effectiveness of the United States Marine Corps. In the mid-1830s, the Seminole Indians in Florida and the Creeks in Georgia were attacking American settlers. This wasn't anything new. It was going on for years. Archibald Henderson volunteered to help, and he suggested that the Marine detachment at various naval yards be placed in the control of civilian guards to support this attack. A battalion of Marines were assembled at Washington and marched the 450 miles from Norfolk, Virginia to Augusta, Georgia. From Augusta, the Marines would march to Camp Henderson on the Chattahoochee River's west bank where they arrived on June 23rd. A day later, the 2nd Battalion of 160 Marines reached Milledgeville, Georgia, under Lt. Col. W. H. Freeman's command. The Marines were now in position for the start of the Seminole Wars. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we get into the Seminole and Creek Wars. This part of U.S. history is going to be a lengthy series. As I mentioned in earlier podcasts, the United States' conflicts with Native Americans dates back 250 years. It's not as cut and dry as most people make it out to be. This topic is a passionate subject for many. As we move on, I will clearly state my opinion and what is based on historical information. We're starting something new this week. Every episode I will give a book recommendation. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but I'm not sponsored by the author or the publisher of the books I recommend. My recommendations may not always be Marine-related, but I've personally read or listened to every one of these books on Audible and thoroughly enjoyed them. So the first book I'm going to recommend is The Greatest U.S. Marine Corps Stories Ever Told, An Unforgettable Stories of Courage, Honor, and Sacrifice. If you are new to Marine Corps history, this book is an excellent introduction to the United States Marine Corps' success. It provides a fantastic high-level view of the Marine Corps from famous battles, from the American Revolution down to Baghdad. It's an excellent book to get your feet wet with Marine Corps history. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of choices available on Audible.
History of the Marine Corps is also on Patreon. Click on the link in the description to visit our page. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.